Hello and welcome to Workhorse, the podcast about Royal Australian Air Force C-130 Hercules aircraft. Today we're talking about strategic circumstances of the latter half of the 1960s and why they resulted in Australia's commitment to Vietnam. And we'll also take an in-depth look at the acquisition of the C-130E, which took place in the same time frame. I'm your host, Bill Karolakis. Some of you know me as K-9. I served over 30 years with the Canadian and Royal Australian Air Forces, primarily in air mobility roles. In this historically informative podcast series, I cover the entire history of Australian C-130s, including a look at how Australian history was shaped by Australia's Hercules aircraft. This podcast series is generally chronological, and it's based upon an extensive history book I wrote about Australian Air Force C-130s titled Air Mobility Workhorse, which should be published in 2024. Let's start by painting the picture for 1965. Australia was still heavily reliant on the forward defense strategy, and it had a foot in both the Imperial Defense Camp and the U.S. Ally Camp. Basically, Australia was relying on a major power to come to its aid in the event of any war. The forward defense policy was why Australia contributed to Confrontasi, but by 1965, Confrontasi was waning, and it mostly disappeared when Indonesia's Sukarno was effectively replaced by Suharto around 1966. At the same time, the U.S. was wrestling with the USSR in the Cold War, seeking to contain the spread of communism wherever it could. For the same reasons, in other words, to aid a major defense partner, Australia committed to fighting in Vietnam. Thus, by 1967, the Australian Defense Force was actively engaged in Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore, and Papua New Guinea. But in 1968, Britain finally, publicly, admitted that it was abandoning the notion of imperial defense in East Asia, and it withdrew all forces from east of the Suez. At the same time, U.S. commitments to its allies was waning, and the U.S. public grew tired of the Vietnam War and persistent anti-communist operations. President Nixon's Guam Doctrine of 1969 advised U.S. allies to assume more responsibility for their own defense. In Australia, the understanding was, aside from a major state-on-state war on or near Australian soil, the U.S. was not necessarily prepared to commit to conflicts Australia could probably handle on its own. With a perceived threat from Southeast Asia and unlikely support from major allies, Australia developed a multi-pronged approach to its strategic situation. It still needed an insurance marker from the U.S. to underpin any catastrophic state-on-state conflict on Australian soil. Thus, Australia maintained its commitment to Vietnam for as long as practicable, thereby supporting U.S. strategic aims and bolstering their partnership with the U.S., Additionally, international relationships were developed through Australia's participation in the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, known as CETO, patrolling the Australian, New Zealand, and Malaya region, and later joining the Five Power Defense Agreement, or FPDA for short, signed in 1971. Australia still has a few people based in Singapore as part of the FPDA, including its commander, which has historically been a RAF Air Vice Marshal, one of which was a C-130 pilot, Greg Evans, who we had on the podcast just a couple of episodes ago. These operations and initiatives were supported by a major recapitalization that occurred in 1963 to support conflicts in the region. Australia committed to the acquisition of eight more Iroquois helicopters, an increased caribou order, 40 more Mirage fighters, two new control and reporting radar systems, and increased reserves of weapons. Air mobility was an issue, 
but it wasn't part of that 1963 expenditure. The operational pressure was great, and with only 12 C-130As, the national strategy was impaired by a lack of air mobility. This was partially resolved with the 1964 decision to double the size of the Hercules fleet, and more on the E model in just a little bit. With the commitment to Vietnam, C-130s were flying regular resupply missions there, along with many aeromedical missions and dedicated operations to rotate major units. I'll detail some of those in future episodes. As the communist threat waned and the U.S. started withdrawing from Vietnam, Australia ended up withdrawing the bulk of its forces in early 1972. The outcome in Vietnam, the changing geopolitics of the near region, and Australia's desire for increased national power brought the strategy of forward defense into question. By mid-1975, Australia's defense strategy shifted to an inwards focus, especially after the election of the Whitlam government in 1972. The associated C-130 tasking shifted along with the strategy, but this had no impact on the rate of tasking. C-130s operated at an unprecedented rate throughout the 1965-75 period, and in the next 10-20 to episodes, I'll be detailing all of those exploits. That was a cursory look at the strategic situation, which started with forward defense and ended with defense of Australia, and was primarily about Vietnam. That era also coincided with the major capability enhancement for Australia, which was the acquisition of 12 C-130Es. So let's look at that now. In November 1963, the Menzies government was re-elected with a healthy majority. The new government increased the defense budget and accelerated defense's recapitalization, which I just mentioned a little bit about. Given the Army's desire to establish an airborne capability in three brigade, and the obvious need for more airlift to support Southeast Asian operations, it was decided an additional 12 C-130s should be acquired. With the unquestionable success of the C-130A, there was no opposition to this proposal. In November 1964, it was officially announced Australia intended to acquire 12 more C-130s, and with that announcement came a decision. What variants to purchase, and when? When was easy. Australia needed additional airlift urgently because of the tempo of overseas operations. At Lockheed in 1964, both the C-130A and C-130B models were no longer in production. As of 25 August 1961, the C-130E was already flying, and by 1964, the first C-130H was about to roll off the production line. Of these two variants, the C-130E was the main U.S. military variant, and the C-130H was intended as an export version of the C-130E. The primary difference between the C-130E and the first C-130Hs was the engine variant. The E had the Allison T-56-A-7 engines, and the H had T-56-A-15 engines. The latter, the Dash 15s, ran at a higher turbine inlet temperature, giving it almost 1,000 equivalent shaft horsepower more than the C-130Es per engine. But those H engines were derated so that the effective increase was closer to 500 equivalent shaft horsepower per engine. This extra power came with commensurate performance improvements in speed, acceleration, climb-outs ability, fuel consumption, etc., Despite the C-130H's engine improvements, given the widespread use of the C-130E in the USAF, Australia decided to acquire the E instead of the H, as this met the intent of commonality with the U.S. fleet, 
and would have benefits for spare parts availability. Let's have a little bit of a look now at the engines, and I'll refer to them as the Dash 7 or the Dash 15. The Dash 7 engine had three main variants. There was the plain Dash 7, there was the Dash 7A, and the Dash 7B. There were many conflicting references for which engine was used on RAF C-130Es, including some pretty reputable sources such as training material and some other historical works. The majority of the evidence, but not all of it, indicated that the Dash 7A was the engine on RAF C-130Es, despite some personal recollections of aircrew and technicians who said that it was the Dash 7A, some 37 Squadron flight engineers recalled using a flight manual that was for the Dash 7B. This made me dig a bit more into the issue, and I found some pretty high-quality defense engineering documents which also said that the RAF was operating the Dash 7B. Further reading indicated that the RAF acquired the C-130E with the Dash 7A engines and that they were modified in the 80s to become Dash 7Bs, thereby explaining the differing stories from the technicians and flight engineers who worked on the airplane. I'm sure there'll be some debates. I'm happy for you to send me your emails and thoughts on whether I've got this right or not. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. They were Dash 7 engines. So let's go back to the acquisition now. The Australian contract for the C-130E was signed on the 9th of Feb, 1965. Despite the relatively short period between production of the C-130As and its new C-130Es, the new Hercules had many performance and capability advantages over the C-130As. The C-130E was based largely on the proven upgrades incorporated into the C-130B. The key focus of these upgrades was the ability to take more cargo over a longer distance than the C-130A. The driver for that change was the USAF's need to get meaningful loads in C-130s from the U.S. to Hawaii and East Asia. Additionally, foreign customers were using the Herc as a long-range transport, and there was clearly a market for a C-130 that could do long-range flights with a meaningful load. The issue with the C-130A design was that the distance from Hawaii to the U.S. or Asia was at the limits of what a C-130A could do with a useful load. The C-130B and E incorporated improvements to performance so that they could easily take 20,000 pounds between Hawaii and San Francisco. Three key improvements made the C-130E much better at long-distance cargo than the A. Firstly, the aircraft's undercarriage and floor structures were strengthened, enabling the C-130E to take off at 155,000 pounds compared to the C-130A's maximum takeoff weight of 124,000 pounds. And the E could take a maximum of 45,000 pounds of cargo, vice the C-130A's 36,600 pounds of cargo. Thus, the C-130E could take a heavier combination of cargo and fuel. With the heavier weights, more power was required to maintain good takeoff performance and speed. By producing the C-130E with the Dash 7 turbine and the Hamilton standard four-blade propeller, the new model generated approximately 1,200 more total equivalent shaft horsepower than the C-130A. The extra weight and energy required strengthened brakes, too. Finally, with the ability to take more weight and maintain speed and performance, Fuel capacity was the final piece of the puzzle in achieving longer range. 
with the addition of two large external fuel tanks and internal center wing tanks. The C-130E carried approximately 24,000 pounds more fuel than the C-130A. The C-130E also incorporated system improvements that made it more reliable and functional. A synchrophaser reduced propeller-induced vibration and noise. In a previous episode, we talked about the difference between the synchronizer on a C-130A and the synchrophaser that was put on the C-130E. The C-130E's navigation systems relied on the Doppler radar and the accompanying along the cross-track computer, which I've previously discussed in other episodes, along with a 1940s-era Lorraine navigation system that used shore-based radio signals to triangulate a position. Eventually, the E got the Omega and inertial navigation systems to enhance navigational accuracy. And finally, a crew favorite, the C-130E, came with a bunk, which the A didn't have. Despite the differences, the C-130A and C-130E were similar enough that the RAF decided to prepare for C-130E operations by putting the first three crews through C-130A conversion, which started in February 1966. After completing that conversion, those three crews and 35 technicians left Australia for Seward Air Force Base in Tennessee and completed their training from April till May. The USAF C-130E aircrew course was a full conversion, and the crews had to quickly forget all those C-130A details they'd learned in Australia, such as engine and propeller management, which was different on the E-model. The conversion program consisted of ground schooling, 30 hours of simulator time, and 50 hours of flying, which qualified the pilots as captains. The course also included instructor training for the pilots and flight engineers so they could go back to Australia and train the next lot of crews. Following their individual conversions, the crews came together at Pope Air Force Base in North Carolina, which is the home of the 82nd Airborne Division, and they underwent a month of tactical training, which involved 40 hours of airdrop and short field landing procedures. That tactical phase ended in late July 66, and that was the end of their training. They stayed at Pope, waited for the delivery of the aircraft, and between the 2nd and 28th of August, the first three C-130Es were accepted by the resident RAF engineering officer, who was Squadron Leader Warner, and the first three were test flown and ferried to Australia by those three crews that had just finished conversion. Wing Commander Ron McKim, the first C-130E commanding officer of 37 Squadron, flew 159 to Richmond, thereby delivering the first E to Australia on the 24th of August, 1966. The 12th C-130E was delivered by the end of January 1967, so that was a pretty quick turnaround, less than six months to get all 12 aircraft. After some initial weeks of training in Richmond, squadron leader Roger Bateson flew the first operational C-130E task, and that was an air logistics support mission to Papua New Guinea on the 11th of October. That's a pretty good story of how to do acquisition. Buy something you know, do it quickly, Get the training done quickly, use the USAF standards, and that all works a treat. That's a wrap for today. In the next episode, we'll dig into aeromedical evacuations from Vietnam. Thanks for listening. And if you know someone that loves aviation, military history, or was a passenger on a C-130, please tell them about the Workhorse podcast. You can find the podcast on all the usual platforms and also on my website, spartanspirit.au. All one word, spartanspirit.au. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.